Hi, listener. Welcome back. You should settle in for this episode, not just because it's a little long, but because of how much gold there is in here. Yu Ching is one of my good friends, and I value our friendship because she is, among many other things, insightful, unique, and so well-read. Over the next 40 minutes or so, you'll hear us touch on machine learning, Rene Magritte, art, immigration, and how to find beauty in your life. Yu Ching speaks with a type of rare, precise honesty that adds a certain weight to everything she says. Listen, and you will undoubtedly learn something new. All right, let's go. This is Science and Feelings. Um, hi, I'm Yu Ching, and I'm a second year grad student in Jason McLean's lab at the University of Chicago. Um, I'm working on spiking neural networks in the lab. Been there for three months, so just starting out. Yeah. <laughs> how, like, how, I know we're both early on in our process, but is have you, like, got an elevator pitch yet? Mm. Of, like, when someone is like, hey, what's your research? No, but I am writing a fellowship, so. <laughs> so <you> good practice. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> should I give it? Yeah. Okay. Hit me. Um, so I've been working on spiking neural networks for the past three months, just like getting my feet wet. The idea for what I will be doing for my dissertation, it's totally going to change. But the idea is that I'm going to use spiking neural networks to model different lamina. So like layers of visual mm -hmm. cortex. We're probably going to model in like mice or if we're going to be more advanced like rats. But mm -hmm. we'll just use... Um, like wiring parameters that we're going to glean from the literature so that we know like how to wire up our spiking net. Mm -hmm. And we're going to start with like the most um, simple version that we can. And the idea yeah. is like when you have a spiking neural network, it's giving you the dynamics that are reminiscent of cortex, but you're not getting any like meaningful information processing out of it. Okay. Whereas if you're using like artificial neural networks, non-spiking, like all they do is give you like meaningful info per se. <laughs> I'm using job. air quotes. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> the idea of our project is to use spiking neural networks, uh, apply machine learning techniques, and then see if we're able to observe information processing hallmarks. So... Whoa. So, um, okay. It's going to start out like really simple. We're going to use like machine learning crap, like backpropagation. And then, but those aren't like realistic. And the whole point right. of using a spiking neural network is for things to be realistic. You get closer so, to actually what's happening in the brain. Yeah. yeah. So, we're going to do backprop. We'll have the network learn some task. And if it can do that, then like great. And it's going to be a visual task because we're modeling visual cortex. Mm -hmm. And so just to, just so I understand what you're saying. So you're interested in how the brain processes information, 
not only at different like levels of complexity, but actually at different physical layers within cortex. Yes. Okay. And to do that, you actually are going to create artificial computational networks that are uh, that are models of what you think are or could potentially be those networks in those different physical layers in yeah. cortex. So what okay. other biologists have observed to be the different physical layers? Mm-hmm. So like how are they um, connected or what kinds of cell types are in each of the layers and how are they connected? Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't do any of that work ourselves, but a lot of people have been working on that. So we'll trust Shoulders of work. giants, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> And uh, presumably, at some point, you'll test this, or you'll try and find it in an actual organism, right? Yes, presumably we're going to find it in either mice or rats, whatever we look at. Okay. But using um, calcium fluorescence imaging, Mm -hmm. we'll look at... um, So in our model, we're going to be trying to do like the six-layer lamina, Mm-hmm. kind of structure but uh, when we're doing calcium imaging we can only reliably look at layer two three okay so we will look at the corresponding layers in the model and see if we can draw some kind of comparison with in vivo oh wow yeah that's it's like super like moonshot kind of thing but at the very least it seems like it has the potential to just like show you something really cool so, like, that's a fascinating question. How does that transfer into, like, what you're doing day-to-day in the lab? Like, are you programming pretty much straight up all the time? Are you, like, working with animals right now? What, what, what's happening in your world right now? I'm straight up programming all the time. So <laughs> this summer was just um, getting familiar with spiking networks. Mm-hmm. Um, different ways that you can measure their activity, um, different ways that you can build a network based on how, like, these terms that, like, just jargon we use in the lab, yeah. like, ha- like in-degree, out-degree, like, clustering, Ooh. and, like, branching, and, like, synchrony, and, like, all these, like, beautiful terms. <laughs> But I didn't know any of them starting out. So day to day in the lab, I feel like I'm just building up my vocabulary. Yeah. Yes. Well, that's an important part. You have to be able to communicate your ideas to your colleagues. Right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> of course, like people know about the link between like science and industry and where like people come up with things in the lab and then they like transfer over to industry. But especially the area of machine learning seems to be so intermixed that like the boundaries I don't know if the boundaries are blurred but effectively the relationship is much much closer would you would you agree with that I would agree with that I think many people would um after like being at the show last night just like people I was at a show last night uh (laughs) and the people who were in the audience and the musicians we were just like chatting afterwards and they're like what do you do and I'm like I do neuroscience they're like what Exactly. And then it turned into like a whole machine learning thing because as soon as I said 
I do computer modeling. They're like, oh, you must do like machine learning. And you were trying to stay away from those words. I was. Yeah. I, I said neuroscience. <laughs> I didn't even say like computational neuroscience. I mean, why do you stay away from those? Like, I, I feel like it's got um, a slightly different like maybe like philosophical focus, okay. which is like machine learning's um, big question is like, how do I make it work? And like computational neuroscience's question is more like, why does it work? And a lot of the time mm -hmm. when I like begin talking to people who are into machine learning, they're like missing the point, which is that it's supposed to be telling you something about the brain and it's not supposed to just advance capitalism. <laughs> right, right. But then why... Why do you then just say neuroscience and not computational neuroscience when you like talk about what you do? I feel like it's not necessary maybe to make that distinction. It's just so much of science, like every every science is like computational basically. Yeah. So it, it's it's fine. It's a mood point. Yeah. Yeah. I like I I struggle to imagine uh, a like non a non-quantitative area of especially biology conservation maybe right right but then you still have to like go back and like put shit into an excel spreadsheet and be like was did did things change <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> i don't know I, I feel like especially this day and age for like many of the world's like big obvious easy scientific questions have been answered and as a result uh, it requires like more effort to reliably detect and discriminate smaller changes to get like the same satisfactory kind of results. I think I understand what you're saying, which is that a lot of things that could be done by sheer observation have already been done. Um, That's a much better way of putting it. It would have been really, <laughs> yeah, it would have been really easy to just like go in um, to a brain and draw what you see and that's like Nobel worthy. Right, right. Like if you were able to take a video of like your calcium image with like an A and a C and like see it drawn in like oh calcium transients. <laughs> like, There's a lot we still don't know about vision. It could happen. <laughs> Hospitalize me. <laughs> Right, like you're not. What you're gonna do is you're gonna like spend a lot of time figuring out what that like twinkling star field actually means, and you're gonna find a really cool difference, and you're gonna be able to say something like really important about it, but it's not gonna be immediately obvious. Yes, I mean, like I said this before on the podcast, but like if you want to, like at these days, if you want to make progress in physics, you have to either launch a new satellite or like spend. A, like billions of dollars smashing atoms together at the speed of light it, it's physics seems like a more mature field than neuroscience would you agree i would have agreed in the past um but i feel like most fields feel that way as in they're a very immature field i think maybe not like physicists but i think or yes, like relative to physics, I think it is totally new, but the amount that is left to be answered 
I think is still um I guess regardless of the age of the field it's like the hotel with like infinite rooms that's kind of the way I've started thinking about it like, what is the hotel with infinite rooms oh yeah if you check into a hotel with infinite rooms and like everybody like s- scoots down a room just the idea that there will always be more rooms in the hotel uh and uh. and regardless of how many people um check in or like shuffle around there's always going to be more right the hotel could have existed for like millennia but there will still be more rooms and i think right. science is the same way regardless of what field maybe it's true that as the field ages less and less is up to observation but i think that has less to do with the age of the field than it does with um the state of engineering and technology in general so you didn't always want to do science right no what did you want to do when you grew up when i was when i was very young and thinking about this um I wanted to work in a zoo. That was when I was very young. And then I realized I have ethical concerns about working in a zoo. But uh-huh. then I from very very young I was very into um art, but didn't think that I actually wanted to do that for a living. Mostly because I started doing art before I had a concept of what making a living was all about. Okay. But So and, so yeah. it was never like a when I grew up I want to be an artist. Um Yeah. It was more like when I grew up I want to um be a circus trainer for wolves kind of thing. That's super cool though. <laughs> I know. <laughs> But um yeah, no. Ever since I was little like art's been like a really big part of my life because it's one of those um endeavors where it doesn't take very much for you to get started you just need like paper and pencil so yeah. just like as soon as someone gave me paper and pencil i was able to do it wow how how has your artistic identity changed throughout your life i think for most of my life i was not able to own it as an identity as uh-huh. in i felt like i was doing disservice to most artists if i were to say oh i'm an artist okay but recently i've decided that i should probably just own it um but in terms of like being an artist i think i didn't Right, it goes back to your first question of like what I wanted to do when I grew up. Yeah. I didn't think I wanted to do it seriously until uh maybe college. I didn't think it would be something that I would do like for my whole life in whatever capacity, but now I think it's something I want to do for my whole life. Yeah. Yeah. You know, your life contains multitudes, right? You know, you're not, you know, you you are an artist now. You make art now. Uh but you're also doing neuroscience. Yes. did the development of your like science passions kind of coincide with that ownership of your identity as an artist do you see them as related or do you think they're pretty distinct and separate 
I think I think they're pretty distinct. I don't most people tend to ask me how my science and my art are related either in like how they developed or what I'm making through my art and what I'm trying to do through my science. Yeah. But I don't really think I have a satisfactory answer. They're just things that I love to do. So then do you see each of those parts of you as like when you're engaged in art, do you see that as a break from science? And when you're doing science, do you see those break from your art or is either of them like more therapeutic or kind of what, do, what do each of them do for you that keeps you engaged with them as seriously as you are doing both of them? I think they challenge me in very different ways. Okay. I think, I think though art is currently more therapeutic for me just because my science has more immediate demands, just being in the program and all. Yeah. I don't think though that, um, like, I don't think that's necessarily the case. Like, I think art still does really challenge me, and it is still work. But right now, the case is just that I work hard at science so that I can have time to work hard at art. Yeah. Uh, and with art, the ways it challenges... Well, it has to do... My art has a lot to do with an exploration of, like, myself and heritage and... Mm -hmm just beginning there it takes a lot of work to be honest um, to like go back and have conversations with my family if I need to yeah. or just sit down and really think about like myself and what I care about and I don't want to make art that is just like right now, the art that I'm making, I'm still unsatisfied with, which is mm -hmm. good because I'm going to continually make it yeah. until I'm satisfied, which might be never. Sure. But um, it is more and more beginning to feel like a narrative for me, just like how you huh. might have steps in like your dissertation project and like what you want to build up. Yeah. for your postdoc and what you might eventually want to do for like a faculty position if you ever get there but with art before I was just like I want to make this and I want to make that and they never had anything to do with each other but now I think if I had to sit down and write an artist statement I could do that there is hey. like actually some kind of arc <laughs> yeah do you mind sharing that thesis it, oh, it's like super amorphous it's not like how I'm going to talk about spiking neural networks but it's <laughs> That's fine. Yeah, it's just, um, again, like I said, just trying to reconnect um, with. So so the idea is, um, I guess it rests on this sense that after having immigrated to the States, oh, by the way, I'm a Chinese immigrant. Uh, after having immigrated to the States when I was quite young, I feel like a lot has been stolen from me by mm. just cultural expectations of the country I live in now. And yeah. a lot of those things I did not think were a loss at the time, 
but I'm beginning to appreciate those things more and I want to regain them. And so there is a sense of, um, in my artwork, I want to convey like a sense of like loss or dissociation Mm. or like inability to find home. And I guess there's, it's just that idea that like as humans, there's really nowhere that we need to be. Um, But that just fuels this like constant displacement. And also, um, I'm really inspired by the works of um, artists like Rene Magritte in, and this maybe at least in retrospect, I think about in terms of neuroscience as well, which is that what you're seeing or what you're trying to see at least is not um, what is actually there. So. Mm. Magritte had this idea that like ran through all of his work, which is that you're always going to be trying to look for the thing beyond the thing that you see. But of course, that's going to be impossible. And maybe that is why I like thinking about vision, because it's just like such a constructed experience. But I think what Magritte was saying was like a little less literal and more about just like anything else, um, any kind of uncertainty that you have about like human experience. Um, And so, yeah, I guess just in my artwork, it's this feeling of being super unmoored. Uh, And which is like, yeah, which is when I speak with my friends who are um, immigrants themselves or like otherwise diasporic, they also share in this sentiment. Hmm. So I'm trying to, I guess, express that in my artwork. I also have been thinking about what's actually the best medium to express that in. Hmm. As in visual art might not be the best in itself. Maybe, like, at least in college, I did a lot of writing. Yeah. Um, And I was part of a workshop of fiction and poetry for my years in Baltimore. And I feel like what a lot of um, contemporary Asian American poets have been able to convey through their poetry is really inspiring. So I might not do that myself, but even here at the university, there is um, a Korean American poet, Emily Yoon, and I'm like her groupie, but uh, <laughs> she has uh, written a couple of um, chat books, a proper book now, it just came out mm. about um, comfort women. Uh, oh, and, yeah. Yeah. And um, part of her book of, po- well, some of the poems are just her writing about. Um, Comfort Women and other poems are actual interviews that she had hmm. um, with them. And it's just like a super powerful collection of poetry. Anyway, it doesn't mean I want to like write poetry myself, but no. I just um, think about, yeah, all of these mediums for creative expression. Uh, it makes me glad that people are expressing themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel 
part of that conversation. And if you don't, do you want to be? I do not currently feel like I'm part of the conversation. Um, I definitely do want to be, but I feel like right now I am still consuming more than I'm creating. Hmm. As in, I'm still building up knowledge of these things. Um, And it's... And that's like awesome, but yeah, at some point I do want to create yeah. in earnest. <laughs> Are you saying that you haven't created in earnest at this point or up to now? I feel like it's um I feel like if I were in if I weren't doing science um, professionally, <laughs> right. I feel like my artwork at this stage is probably like still um undergraduate level and I want to be able to actually get um, into the professional art world I haven't been able to mentally give myself a degree yet so when that (laughs) happens I'll, I'll know I'm ready so thinking about your goals you spoke really eloquently about your creative goals um but you haven't talked much about kind of what scientific goals you have other than kind of your immediate ones what do you want your future to look like yeah i kind of stopped envisioning my future because i think that is not good for me yeah. But, um, yeah, but right. I mean, in terms of science, I'm, I, I see my future as finishing this program and it's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's lofty goal, but no. I'm, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not going to, um, like I understand the realities of like being in this field, being in anything really, um, professionally is very difficult but I feel like especially so if I wanted to pursue scientific research and like everybody talks about this and seems like there are um, at least for scientists who are versed in um, computational methods it seems like there are industry jobs to go into I also don't see myself in that role right but I don't know if I would be able to have the courage to just drop science and do art because I also think that would leave me feeling very dissatisfied, like I couldn't just not do science. But why? I feel like it. I need to be challenged in both ways in order to feel like I'm having a fulfilling time. So it's not like a sunk cost thing it's more in in your life you want to be challenged in different ways yeah like I really believe in science I believe in it as much as I do in art Hmm. Um, I think when I say I believe in art I mean something different but when I say I believe in science it's like I think it's such a worthwhile endeavor yeah 
And I feel like if I were to throw myself behind like a cause, it doesn't seem like it's necessarily a cause in the way most people think about causes. But um, if I were to dedicate myself to a cause, I think science is a pretty good one. Do you think you use those words because you see science in some ways as a sacrifice? I'm not sure about science exclusively. I think if you're going to do anything hard, it's a sacrifice. But As opposed to? As opposed to doing something a little bit easier with, like, instead of thinking about a cause, you think about yourself. Hmm. Yeah. It's difficult to disentangle, though, because thinking about... Thinking about myself means I think about the causes I care about, but... It bounces right back. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, like, envisioning myself content, I think I can envision a version of my life where I'm not dedicated to a cause and just in the pursuit of contentment. And that's Mm. okay, but... yeah. I don't really want to do that right now. So I think I would still be really trying to work hard at science in whatever capacity. It's just so difficult to do it unless you're part of an institution because you need so many resources in order to get off the ground. That's true. And the community is like quite exclusive. Um, (laughs) They're not going to take anything you do seriously unless you have an institution backing you. That's true. And I guess that's one of the reasons why I decided to do science professionally instead of art. Hmm. I I can think of people who pursued science professionally and then later on were able to do creative things, but I can't really think of examples the other way around. No. You hear lots of stories of people starting acting at 45. Yes but you don't see people picking up like chemistry. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I hadn't really thought about it like that. Do you think the way that science is set up now makes it difficult to have what you plan to have, which is a really strongly balanced relationship with it in conjunction with a strong relationship with your art yes um i think it goes back to what i was saying before about i don't know if it's science itself or the institutionalization of it but it is like I mean, it's a very difficult door to get behind. Yeah. In in the process of trying to do anything, to like get started out and doing anything, there's going to be um, things that you kind of have to bend over backwards for, things that you just have to tolerate. Yeah. And 
I just think of um, instances where I am trying just to do science, but the career of doing science requires me to make compromises or not just sacrifices in terms of like oh I'm going to lose time on making art today but like actual like compromises Um, and it's really unfortunate that that has to be the case but again it's there's such a hierarchy in like art and in science you kind of in order I wish like this wasn't the case but sometimes maybe and maybe it's only the case when I'm like younger but Mm -hmm. it feels like there's no other way around it and I have to compromise I think of Joan Didion when she was um so when she was really young she won some Mm -hmm. Vogue essay competition I think and then she got to go to New York City and um write for them And in the hotel that she was staying in, there was an AC that was turned way too cold. Mm -hmm. And she felt like there was nothing she could do about it, even though obviously she could just go down to the front desk and ask or figure out the thermostat herself or something. But she just felt like extraordinarily helpless in that circumstance. And writing about it later, she just said, yeah, I was never as young as I was then. And I feel like it might be a symptom of youth, but in like in a lab situation that I don't like or lab members who um, in one way or another take advantage of me, I always feel like or have felt like in the past that there was nothing to be done about it. When looking back, there were totally things to be done about it, but I mean, that's kind of moot, I felt like I couldn't so I didn't yeah do you feel like those instances of kind of control being taken from you do you think that those are receding do you think that as as you've put more time into and passed many countless hurdles to get here is it getting easier or is it still hard i think i think it's gotten easier because i've gotten luckier in the people i encounter but Mm -hmm. i think it wouldn't actually be easier if like circumstances arose again it it might be if i've like advanced far enough in the career but then i have to be careful that I'm not being that person to other people who are more junior than me. Yeah. Yeah, we might have those opportunities. We will have those opportunities soon. And the responsibility to not perpetuate. Yeah. But none of this is... None of this is is inevitable, though. But it's so entrenched that it often seems like it. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, they put in, like, what? Like, the 
committees to have the students back or like students unionize or right seems like there are measures that like prevent um that kind of thing but yeah i don't really know i had a student um or sorry i had a friend who's a student at caltech right now Mm -hmm. um, who had just like a horrible experience with their boss and their pi and um is now thinking of like leaving the program Mm. and i feel like that the fact that science is such a like individualized mentor-based system like it's like i like that but it allows for that kind of thing to happen more easily i think yeah pis run their own kingdoms yep for better for worse and most of the time not really for the better (laughs) um (laughs) It's a little bit, I don't know, it's maybe just a symptom of, like, honestly everything when there is power involved. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I'm sure it's not much better in, like, a corporate workplace between, well, maybe it is, I don't know, HR departments, but... Right, so this is the thing, and this is how I've talked about science in for a long time like science is filled with people that all they want to do is science Mm -hmm. they don't want to like think about people they don't want to think about like how to like run a lab they don't want to think about management or anything they just want to do science Mm -hmm. and so what you end up with is a whole scientific like effectively industry of science that is like just a mountain hodgepodge garbage fire of like <gasps> HR problems and like in corruption and power dynamics mm-hmm. and uh, people being taken advantage of and in bias and everything. Mm-hmm. And then you have like this whole other world of business where people have been like, okay, um, how do we manage people? <laughs> right. And I'm not saying the business world is perfect by any stretch because they're both newsflash part of the same world but um right like you have people that are dedicated to like making businesses work by making people happy and like figuring out how to best do that and there just aren't those people in science really it's like this weird parallel world situation i don't know does that make sense to you at all that totally makes sense to me um yeah so that's like and and that's why you get like so much dysfunction in science where in with with problems that have been solved that have been solved in other places yes like just i don't know hire an mba to be your lab manager but you can't hire an mba because you can't afford them that's the problem (laughs) (sighs) i'm too worked up for it to be this dark in this room You are wise, or at the very least knowledgeable. When you're thinking about people who are like just starting this whole thing, grad school that is, what advice would you give to people like you? It's going to be super tedious most days, and you're not going to remember why you started on this path. Um, It's going to feel like you're going to have regrets, of course, And I think this is part of like starting out with science, which is that 
everybody's going to start with like the big lofty like universe questions um that like really really inspire you or just the sense of like wow the world is like glittering and amazing and science can tackle it and then you get down to like fixing bugs in your code and that sucks (laughs) that was just a parenthesis and that took seven hours (laughs) i know and so yeah we've we've been there i've been there Uh but uh, so yeah, it's totally going to suck. It might suck for like weeks or months at a time. Yeah. But I feel like it's useful to remember that just tell yourself once in a while or when something good does happen, just like remember that. Uh, I think it's always useful to find something beautiful in what you're doing. And mm-hmm. for maybe months at a time, you won't find it, but it's going to happen. Um, beauty can mean different things too, but just something yeah. like really elegant or unexpected or even expected. And you're like, damn, that was beautiful. <laughs> and it's, I think it's easier for you to be more receptive to finding that in science when you're open to that kind of beauty and other aspects of your life. Mm-hmm. So just having like... Um, being able to find people to connect with, even if they're like not scientists, even remotely. Yeah, um, that's important. Yeah, and uh, take a break when you feel like you need one. Seriously. Yes. Seriously. Like seconded. And a break doesn't just mean like a five-minute walk around your building. It can mean a couple days. Yes. Um. And it's going to be really hard because of what I said before about um, people you're working for have authority over you. But um, try to be on your own side. Um, Because I feel like a lot of times in the past I haven't even been on my own side. Uh, Yeah, that's my advice to you. That's really good advice. Thank you for sharing. You're welcome. And thank you for being on Science and Feelings. (laughs) Thank you for having me, Caleb.